Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown, and you're listening to episode 32. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, I recommend Anchor, and I also recommend starting a podcast because it's tons of fun. Anchor has been a great place for me getting started because it's free. They have creation tools that basically let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. They distribute it basically everywhere for you, and you've basically got all you need to make a podcast just right in one place. So go to the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started. Our guest on today's show is a very special guest who is coming to us for no doubt in my mind for such a time as this. Dr. Diane Langberg is a world-renowned expert on abuse of power, and she is an internationally recognized psychologist and experienced counselor who speaks on abuse and trauma all around the world. In her travels, she's visited the killing fields of Cambodia. She sat with victims to hear and listen in her research and in her practice, and she's helped many pastors overcome issues that they didn't even realize they were facing in the areas of abuse, of power and spiritual abuse and various kinds of abuse. So many of these pastors have not realized what they are doing and how they are using power to harm others. And she's helped to set them free and their congregations free all around the world. She directs her own counseling practice and co-founded the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. And she's also on the board of Grace, which if you haven't heard of that, it's been in the news quite a bit lately with a lot of the church abuse scandals in the last few years. Um, it's godly response to abuse in a Christian environment, and it's led by Boz Chavitijan. And um, she also co-chairs the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. She's written numerous books, but I must say her latest book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, has been such a gift to so many. I have a friend or a man I went to seminary with, and he has said he's been waiting 45 years for this book. She she really just, in all of her decades of experience, helps us understand how power can be used for good and not to harm. So today is going to be an episode where we dig into some really hard things. And I just want to be mindful of the fact that there are some of you listening who within the church or maybe in your own homes or in, um, you know, a sports team you were on. I mean, various places where abuse of power could have taken place. Just I'm recognizing that it's a very sensitive topic. And so, you know, no worries if you, if this isn't something you can hear today and that you could, you just even want to come back to it later or never, that's okay. You, you do what you need to do to help yourself have the healing that you need. But if this is an opportunity for you to learn and uh, grow and understand what experts are saying around this topic, Dr. Diane Lamberg is here for us. If you need to pause it, come back, you know, take a break and come back, that's okay. But she's here today to share her wisdom and her knowledge and how she sees what God has given and entrusted to us in the area of power as something to be used for good and not for harm. So welcome to today's show, Dr. Diane Langberg. Hi, Dr. Langford. Thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. 
Well, um, I know who you are and a lot of people I know know who you are because you are just an amazing person who's really dedicated your life to a lot of really important topics um, that you've researched and written about. But for my listeners who don't know who you are yet, why don't you just tell us about yourself, your background, your family and the work that you do. I'm a psychologist and uh, I started out in the early 1970s as a uh, with a master's degree and then a PhD at a time when there were very few women in the field and also a time when the church was not very welcoming of people who called themselves psychologists. Um, and also a time when uh, trauma was not yet acknowledged. Um, so there's been a lot of changes and I've done the work for almost 50 years, 48 this year. Um, I've traveled the globe um, because church here and around the world has wanted to learn about trauma in recent years and uh, have a group practice outside Philadelphia with about 17 colleagues. Um, and I uh, have worked a great deal with leadership, churches, Christian organizations, um, which grew out of my work with victims, victims of sexual abuse, domestic violence, and then other kinds of abuse over time. And then the churches that those things happened in and the churches where those things were covered up. So that's brought me to a whole different world and uh, it seems to be my place these days is speaking out about the body of Christ that doesn't look like its head. Hmm. Yeah, I just wanna commend you because it's, it's not an easy work to do, to listen to some of the things you have to listen to when it comes to trauma and abuse. It's not really the kind of thing you probably grow up as a little girl saying, hey, one day I just wanna hear about all these terrible things and help, help people work it out. But we need people like you. And certainly you must have a lot of job security this year because it is just everywhere. And I'm sure you're getting a lot of opportunities to share. And I just wanna thank you because it's not easy to be that voice, but we really need it. So first of all, Thank you for that. But I do want to just start with this question, because as a person who's been a pastor in a church here in the U.S. now for about a year and a half, um, you know, one of the things I've noticed is there's a lot of different interpretations about spiritual authority. And um, I'd love for you to describe how spiritual authority can actually be misused by even well-meaning leaders who are actually end up causing harm to others. Uh, yes, I mean, spiritual authority can be misused, not just by well-meaning leaders, but well-meaning parents, you know, well-meaning educators, all kinds of people in different positions who uh, at times, sometimes on purpose and sometimes blind to themselves, use their authority to coerce, to manipulate, um, and use spiritual language in the doing of it which is very confusing to the sheep and often shuts them up and makes them think that what's being demanded of them is actually righteous when it is not. And that goes all the way out on the extreme of the continuum, which I think most of us would be appalled by. So I've spent years working with abuse victims and some of those have been women whose pastors have demanded sex from them and use spiritual language and spiritual authority to justify what they're doing. There's probably not too many people who would say that was okay. Yeah. 
But that continuum goes down to much more subtle things as well, which are easier to ignore or silence, cover up, and even to cover up in ourselves. You know, we, we don't see what we're doing clearly, though we might see it if it were more extreme. Um, so it, it can be pretty rampant. And we fool ourselves and tell ourselves that what we're doing is for the good of the sheep. Yeah, I, I, I know that from what I've read and from some of the things I've seen, it can often be really confusing when it's on the lower end of that spectrum, what you're talking about. Um, I mean, certainly when it's sexual abuse, but um, I'd love for you to describe, um, there's a phrase spiritual, spiritual abuse, which I think is more commonly known maybe this year than it has been in, in the past, but some people may not be familiar with that phrase, but just describe to us what spiritual abuse is and why so often it seems pastors and other church leaders might not even realize that they're actually abusing people in this way. Well, let's start with the fact that to abuse somebody means to mistreat them or use them wrongly. And, you know, we use that word pretty loosely without really thinking about what it means. So what you're talking about is spiritual things used to mistreat someone or use them wrongly, which ought to be a staggering oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, and, and abuse of any kind generally uh, involves things like manipulation or coercion, um, force, whatever. So spiritual abuse means using spiritual words, scripture, um, other things that have a spiritual flavor to them, um, like saying I'm your shepherd or whatever, and then using that platform to do something abusive. It's extremely damaging to other people because they get so confused because this is the shepherd or the leader or whatever. This is somebody who's using God's word or at least words that I'm familiar with in the Christian world. But what they're doing doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. And one of the other pieces that often goes with that, if I speak up and say, ouch, basically, I'm silenced. I don't understand, I'm proving my rebellion, all kinds of things. So when somebody hurts us and won't hear us about the hurt, something is very wrong. Hmm. Yeah, and we're seeing it happen over and over again right now um, with social media being a way for people to, to share their story, but still the silencing, the character assassination um, even some of the gaslighting you're just mentioning, it's still so, so common from what we're seeing out there, um, especially, in, I mean, you have the post Robbie Zachariah situation, which involved sexual abuse, but that wasn't the only kind of abuse there. There was abuse of power, there was spiritual abuse, and sometimes it does seem to start small. Maybe those are the early red flags that lead to something bigger. I don't know. What's your experience with that? Usually that's true. I mean, people don't generally just wake up one morning and decide to be sexually abusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get there little by little and we get there through deception. And initially we deceive ourselves. You know, I, I'm doing this thing, which could be down low on the continuum, so to speak, but I'm doing this thing because I've worked so hard and I'm exhausted or whatever. We tell ourselves things. And then over time, if it 
pokes at us a little bit, we increase what we tell ourselves. And then eventually, if somebody confronts us, we tell them. You know, why would you want to injure somebody who loves God and is working for him? Or look at this ministry. If you, if you talk about these things in public, you'll destroy this ministry, which will be hurtful to God kinds of things. So we deceive other people. And oftentimes people are invested in being deceived because they love their church or organization or circle or whatever they're in. They hear all the spiritual language and they want it to be true. They're longing for it. And so they choose to believe the lie. And then you end up eventually with systemic abuse, because if enough people do that, it just runs rampant through the whole system. And the system actually ends up supporting deception and abuse, sometimes for decades, until somebody comes along and says, enough, this is wrong, which is what Jesus did in the temple. You know, he went in and he cracked whips and turned tables over. He said, enough, this is the father's house and it looks nothing like the father." they didn't listen because he came back and did it a second time and they didn't listen and he wept but he never went back he never went back mm. so he has shown us that those things are in the house of god and he has shown us that making a racket about it is actually godly <laughs> which usually somebody who's making a racket about it is told they're not godly because we want to preserve the external church. We have a big church, we have a lot of people, it brings in people, we have great music, we have a lot of money. That's all evidence of God's blessing, which it's not. And if you do this, you're going to destroy God's house and his name, which you're not, he's the God of truth. Um, but it's very confusing to many people and uh, they want it not to be true. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it goes on both sides, right? It, it's not just, you couldn't just blame one person in a system like that. You know, say for example, it is maybe, um, you know, in some cases a lead pastor who's being spiritually abusive or abuse of power or something like that. And then there's the people around them, like you're saying that they, they enjoy the fruits of this mm -hmm. system. Um, and, and so it does, it almost takes two to tango, at least two, sometimes more. And that's, that's where it's really hard for these who are being abused to come forward if they're going to be portrayed as not being godly, like you said, when in fact, they're feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit to bring out the truth, even with grace and love, um, but still be attacked. But let's, let's talk about power. I know that's a place you've camped out for a long time. And you've said, you know, written a lot about it. Talk to us about like, what is it about power that so often leads to the abuse of it? Well, it started in the beginning. Um, if you go back to Eden, when the enemy approached Eve with deception and an abuse of power. And, you know, he, he said, I want to be like the most high. I want to have the most power that there is. So he went in with God's words and twisted them a bit. And she followed him. Power like that is never satisfied. You're always afraid. You're always afraid somebody will find out you're a fraud or think you're a fraud. You're always afraid people will take it away from you. You're always afraid that the kingdom that you've built will fall. Um, and so you 
want more power to protect yourself and your institution or whatever it is, your place, your esteem, you know, your uh, reputation, all of those things. And it never satisfies. It was never meant to satisfy. It doesn't satisfy a soul. And so, and, and you certainly don't want anybody to know you're vulnerable in those positions or anything like that. And so we do everything we can, not only to protect our power, but to increase it, often out of fear, certainly out of arrogance as well, but there's fear in there. Mm. And it's yeah. not enough, it's never enough. Yeah, what you say rings so true. Um, I mean, you're certainly the expert in terms of all the psychology of it and all the nuances there, but it all rings true because we've seen and known powerful people who are insatiable. Um, and, you know, even some very powerful men with lots of influence and money, you know, getting close to them, sometimes they just seem like little fearful boys, you know, and well, sometimes they are sometimes that's how they grow up, which is what makes them hungry for power. Those wounds have never been looked at or dealt with. I think somewhere in the book, I put down some questions for leaders to ask themselves, which involve their history and things like that. And so that damage, those wounds and the vulnerability that they bring, uh, there's no open door to go there because it's threatening and, and frightening. So yeah, if someone challenges that, then they, they can tend to really fight because it's so oh, sure. Yeah, and I guess if those uh, refugees or asylum seekers, they spend years in limbo, um, going through a, a long process of interviewing and trying to get find a resettlement country where they can uh, settle down for a long term. And in between that time. Try Alitu, the number one platform for the best editing and recording experience. They really have no real, um, real identity, no country that claims them, no rights, um, and they're the, I mean, as vulnerable as you get to exploitation and trafficking and uh, corruption, bribery, all the things that the vulnerable face. And so, um, what one of the things that's been been exciting to see in Southeast Asia in the part of the world where I spent the most time in, in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia is to see churches step up and say, you know, all of these kids, there's refugee families, there's all these children go years without education potentially, and we can do something about that. And so they've sacrificially given space for education, they sacrificially give of their time, give money, give other resources to be able to help these children during these long years of limbo get an education. I mean, that's really exciting stuff to see, um, to see how transformed people through a community, the church can actually make a difference in the city. It's one small way and there's so much more that needs to be done in the city. Second, and, and more directly related to your, your series on faith at work, um, you know, to live in a city, you really need money. You know, it's different than maybe a, a rural place where you grow up on family land or something like that. There's just less and less of the family land for people to have. Um, there's not enough 
farmable land for for people in most places in the world and so people end up in cities and to be in a city you've got to pay rent and you've got to pay bills and you know one fee after another it takes money and to get money you have to work and so working and city life are just go hand in hand that's there's there's no separating the two and and so part of that then is to recognize that if this is so much a part of city life then to think about transformation in the city, we've got to think about how do we engage marketplace? How do we engage work and what that looks like? And so um, I, I think we've, we've got, I, I'm excited that you're talking about this. And um, I think it's a really important thing for us to think about as people of faith, um, because I think, so A, work was, um, Work is a gift from God. It's it's actually there before the, the fall of humanity. You know, work is good. It's a good thing. Um, you know, when you look at retirees, you know, the ones that find a way to continue working, maybe not working like for pay, but, you know, working a garden or working as a volunteer um, in, in some way, those are the most fulfilled once. I, mean, I think we're just wired to work in some way. Um, and so then how do we, how do we engage a city, you know, in a transformative way through work? I mean, I think part of it is to recognize that city people are broken and hurting. And um, in so many other respects, you can go home um, in, in today's world and just watch YouTube videos for the rest of the night and not see anybody. You can have your food delivered to you and not see anybody. And except during a pandemic, the, the kind of the exception to that is work, is work, you're, you're around other people. And this is maybe the one shot at uh, people who are hurting in all kinds of ways, having some kind of exposure to, to hope and to love. And I think that's what you know, we can do if we take faith in the workplace seriously. And I, I think I listened to your interview with, with Eva and, you know, Eva's, Eva's a, a testimony to that, right? You know, she came to the workplace broken in a, in a particular way and through a, a loving boss came to experience uh, a hope found in Christ that, that she was lacking and, and hurting without. So, um, so I think that's maybe the, the first thing I would say about faith in the workplace is that um, it's your interface potentially between those that have hope and those that need hope. Yeah, I, I agree with, with all that. It's, it is so um, short-sighted in the faith community for us to expect um, in the church, for example, um, one Sunday morning to be able to transform people's lives. People at work um, are around people for the most part five days a week in most situations and like the urban setting and offices and things like that. And um, the frequency of contact with people is where a lot of the life change really happens. And if, if people are really hurting, even on a Sunday morning in some of the larger churches or you know, probably even worse right now if it's a digital church because it's harder to make connections, 
Um, you know, somebody might have a 10 to 15 second, maybe three minute conversation with you about what they're going through. Um, but when you're at work with people that you just, you know, you're more likely to have that time in non-COVID situations, obviously here, Google and Twitter and Facebook and all that is over Zoom. But yeah, you know, I don't know if you heard my um, podcast with Megan and Victoria, but Megan works at Google and you don't have the water cooler moments anymore, but they set up times like, you know, happy hour after work, Zoom, you know, and so they do have hangout virtual things and there are ways it's not the same, but I am encouraged that people are having faith conversations because, you know, if we expect it to just happen once a week, um, whether you work, whether you're a Buddhist priest and expecting people to come in and interact with you, like when they, when they come into worship or whether you're a pastor, whether you're an imam in the mosque, you just have limited interaction with people of faith in your community. And right. Of course, those conversations at work are, are more likely to happen often. Um, yeah. And I think, like you said, that's where it happened with Eva. She was seeing people on a regular basis. She trusted them, respected them to the point of even moving locations when her boss left. Uh, we can, we have more time with people we work with than we do other, even our families sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's a really important space. And, um, and I really value the conversation. One of my disappointments is that I feel like um, as people in the church, we've not done a great job in this conversation. Uh, we do have a lot of Sunday Christians. Um, and in some ways, uh, it feels normal to be that in certain, in certain churches. But this is a really important conversation because our faith really should impact all of our lives. Like in the concept of Shalom, it should really be more holistic. Um, so, you know, sometimes I hear, you know, clergy, you know, pastors, people who are leading in the church talk about like full-time paid ministry as the highest level of God's calling on your life. Um, and I, I know that I often hear that with the ears of my friends who are in, you know, work. It was actually what caused uh, Gerard to go from being an atheist to a Christian when he studied the creation story. So this passage in Philippians, because he was God, it was in his nature to serve. That, that just changes everything. Oh, absolutely. And if we're made in God's image, the more we lean into service, the more we become yeah, like God instead of less oh, like him. No, say that again. Say that one more time. <laughs> The more, yeah, we're made in God's image. And if God is a servant, the more we lean into service, the more we're like him and less like where we're not supposed to be. We, we have choices all the time, every moment, every day to go toward Jesus or to go away from him. And this, this whole notion that you have one moment in your life where you accept Jesus and then the rest of your life is set and your eternity is set. There's just so much more to the story. It's with this daily taking up your cross moment by moment and well, and I think that view of salvation is used by the evil one to make us completely impotent, just yeah. to sail through life. And that's not what salvation is. No. Yeah. There's so much more and, and we're made for work and there's a beauty in work. Mm -hmm. And so God gifts us and, you know, discovering what that is and allowing God to unleash those gifts in us as we work is, is so important. And, um, and so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like at work, you know, people of faith often face these ethical choices. So I know there's a lot in the faith and work space where people, you know, sort of tried to unpack that, you know, men may feel pressured to be a part of like maybe a good old boys club at work at the expense of women, women may be asked to do inappropriate things, wear a short skirt. So you get a promotion, these kind of things you hear about occasionally bribes may be expected, 
you know, look the other way when a boss mistreats an employee, say they don't get demoted, maybe just a regular part of some people's work environment. And as a, you know, a person of faith in these environments, it can be really challenging moment by moment to know what, you know, decision to make. And so those, but these things can happen in ministry. It can happen in full-time ministry in churches, as well as in just, you know, any old job. So what would you advise someone who might be navigating these kind of struggles and they feel alone as a person of faith in the workplace? Um, you know, the first thing I would say just to cause us to think a little bit more is I don't think that happens as often as we think it does. I really don't. I think most businesses can't stay in business over the long haul if they're making really poor financial decisions or hiring decisions. And I think sometimes um, Christians like to feel like they're being persecuted when they're really not. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, uh, yeah, I just think, uh, I think you want to be really thorough in your thinking before you put something into that category. Mm. Yeah. And then I think there's lots of things that's really easy to say no to. I've never had anybody ask me to wear a shorter skirt to get a promotion. Never. Um, and maybe that says something more about me than them. So I don't know, but, um, I think sometimes we, uh, I don't know. I, I think sometimes it's just not that much of a part of our work, but I do think then moving on from that thought is what's good, right. And wise, what's good, right. And wise. And to hold that very lightly, and by lightly, I don't mean hold those words lightly, but when you use them, when you do what's good and right and wise, don't wave a banner, don't make it a big production, just very calmly stick to it. Like, I just don't think that would be a wise choice. I don't think that would be good over the long haul. I can see in the short term that would take this pressure off of us, but in the long term, that's just not going to work, is it? Um, and to be able to, I think to be able to be really comfortable with um, difficult conversations in a very grace-filled way um, is a really important skill. And it's hard. Um, it's really hard. But to talk about that person behind their back, that's not the right way to do it. To have the courage to sit down and have a very um, lighthearted, in a way, easy conversation of, I just don't think I could make that decision or agree with that choice and here are my reasons and um and then to just trust that god you know if you make good choices right choices and wise choices that that's honoring god whether he clears a path and allows you to succeed whatever that means or not you've done the good right and wise thing and i sure haven't done that all the time oh my goodness there i have so many examples when i haven't and to trust that God forgives me and invites me into doing it differently next time. And I think, I think for me, the bigger question is, how do I go to work with people who don't share my faith and really love them, really love them? And part of love would be, let's do the good, right, and wise thing here. Let's do that. And then you're just one voice. That's all you can do. At the end of the day, if you're not in the leadership role, you don't get to make the final decision, but you've gone on record. Sometimes you may have to check in with HR just to say, I want to you know, it's gotten to the point where I need it to be known that I didn't agree with this. Um, and then you go back to work and you do your job and you do it really well and you treat people well and you make decisions that are collaborative with people and you follow through with people and you praise them as well as give them tough feedback. 
all those things are part of, I think, being a good Christ follower in the workplace. Yeah, that's so good. And uh, I'm sure it's encouraging a lot of people right now that are listening around the world, you know, um, especially in places where Christianity is not the predominant religion. And there's always this feeling of, um, I guess, imposter syndrome in a lot of cases where you're like, I don't belong here. You know, there's a lot of people that face that on a regular work day. And it can be, you know, it can be like these Esther moments. I'm reading Esther right now. So (laughs) it can be like these Esther moments where God asked you to do something that could really affect a lot of people's lives. Absolutely. And that happens. Yeah, Yeah, it does. does. But the good news is God empowers us and it it does encourage us to know that other people are out there doing that. And so I I hope that people hear that when they're listening today, that when you're making the good and right and wise choice, there's others who are doing it and paying a price. And uh, in the the long run, you want to be able to hold your head high that you've done what God asked you to do. (laughs) I'm guessing most of us that have been in the workplace have also had the situation where it's been the Christ followers who have been making dubious choices where you're kind of scratching your head and other people who aren't formally Christians who are doing the good, right, and wise thing. And you're like, okay, um, wow, the kingdom's in them. They may not know fully what that means yet. They may not know Jesus yet, but, uh, and again, that's why I think Jesus spent so much time talking about salt and light and yeast and seed. These things that have disproportionate impact that you mostly don't notice. I've never been to a meal where somebody's talked about the salt afterwards. I've never eaten bread with somebody who's talked about the quality of yeast, but those two things have made all the difference. And that's what we're called to to be and do. Yes, so true. And uh, having spent so much of my life um, as a person who was following Jesus as a minority in most situations. I mean, most of my relationships over my life have been with people who don't follow Jesus. And I so often felt that they outshined me and others in their good deeds. Um, And it is just this reminder to me that we are made in God's image and God is good. And when we see goodness, we just you know, there's a little smile that comes into my soul when I recognize that, you know, that that's God's goodness um, through people, even people who don't, you know, necessarily worship God at all. And it is a beautiful thing to notice and a challenging thing. (laughs) It's an embarrassing thing to have someone be more like God than you are when you claim to follow him. And it's convicting. Mm -hmm. It's convicting in the right way. I also think another thing that Christ followers could do in the workplace, again, with a very light touch is just to apologize. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we're the best people to come back the next day and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I don't think I spoke up at the meeting and I should have, or I think I said too much and talked over people. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't get that report done on time. I apologize. That's not okay. Like that makes a big difference. It starts to set a culture of vulnerability and authenticity where people can bring their humanness to work. Oh yeah. That's really good. That's great advice. Very practical advice that we can all try to get, you know, Five percent better at <laughs> this year. Yeah. <clears throat> there you go. Yeah, so it's a good growth uh, leadership edge we can all <laughs> work toward. Me for sure. <laughs> so I'd love for you to talk about you know because you're you're leading TBC and and just you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you imagine <clears throat> when you think about the Bay Area. You know the most unchurched area of the United States. We're told and um, and the work we do here through the church and outside the church and just being salt and light, like you said. So when you dream about a Bay Area that is transformed in such a way as to have, you know, all these people and all their careers bringing their full selves to work, what do you, what does that look like in your imagination? Yeah. No, it's, it's exciting to think about that if we can connect 
all the points of light in the kingdom in the Bay Area, those that are in faith and work and working in marketplace, but follow Jesus, pastors, nonprofit leaders, church planters, evangelistic efforts. If we can overlap and connect in that, um, I think it's really interesting that in John 17, Jesus saved his last public prayer for unity. He did not talk about unity in the rest of the gospels. Why in the world did he do that? And he repeats that word over and over and over again. I think there's this power in this space between us, maybe five to 10% overlap where something exponential is possible, but we always focus on our reasons to stay separate, even in, as Christ followers. And then at the end of chapter 17, the first verse of chapter 18, the evil one has Jesus on his way to the cross. Now that's not a coincidence. I think, I think the evil one trembled when he heard Jesus ask the father to grant unity to his followers. There's a power there that I don't think we fully explored. And so I think bringing like-minded people, whether they're like-minded around homelessness or foster care or leading a church or marketplace ministry, together where we learn together and we pray together and we collaborate and do work together makes for a powerful expression of the kingdom. Right now uh, in the Bay Area, a lot of what you would see is individual points of light but our TBC's job is to bring those points of light together so they shine brighter. One of the things we talk about is as churches collaborate together to help serve cities, how do we change the conversation among city officials, especially in a secular environment like the Bay Area? When, when might churches be the first go-to phone call or email that gets sent out in the middle of a crisis by church, by city officials? How might city officials start talking to each other in whispered tones? Hey, if you haven't checked out churches in your zip codes, you're missing one of the most powerful unstoppable forces in the area. In faith and work, when we have our Christ followers at work, doing all the things we talked about, treating people really well, showing up when they have a personal issue as well as a work issue, uh, being different in a very winsome way, what's possible for the kingdom and how might people experience Jesus again for the first time or the second time in a way that they haven't before in a very secular area. That gets me very excited. Oh, that's exciting too. You know, I had during this time of pandemic, um, we at our church um, with Darren Alarde, who I know, you know, we started this thing called Echo Compassion. It was a dream he had and um, he's incredible at starting things. And it was really exciting to be a part of at a time when we were stopping church services in person, right. we felt like the church was really growing because, um, people started starting our community. And so I got put in this role of <clears throat> the development director, which is where I was reaching out to all these different nonprofits and civic organizations and, you know, mayors, mayor Licardo's office and all these things here in San Jose. And, um, and just reaching out and being like, how could we partner together as this new effort, Echo Compassion? And I really got such a different view of what our civic leaders go through, the way they we could be, you know, more pastoral with them. Um, yeah. I was even able to have a, a phone call with um, Mayor Licardo's kind of right hand guy, and and just in the call, you know, ask him how he's doing with his family. I mean, he was going through the pandemic too, and then trying to lead us, and um, just to be like, we're we're here for you. Like, what do you need most? Do you just need to talk to someone? We can do that. Do you want to use our volunteers to do something amazing? We can do that too. But um, it just made me realize what an untapped thing that is here in our area. And so I love that part of your vision. Well, and just what you said, you went and asked them what they needed sometimes in churches. And it, I don't think it's badly intended, but we come with our ideas and it's not what they most need. Mm 
Mm. And anytime you serve somebody in their point of greatest need, it's really a testimony. Like I know a lot of churches and I've been part of this, we'll do backpack drives and paint murals and those are good things. But most principals go to bed at night worried about third grade reading levels, Mm -hmm. which are incredibly predictive for academic success. And therefore, how how do churches come in and help tutor and then teacher retention? So what can be done in those two areas where their biggest felt needs are? Maybe we use things like backpack drives and murals to build trust but then how do we say, you know, what do you, what's really keeping you up at night? And how, how do we activate people in our church who are passionate about those things to help? Yeah. Yes, that's so true. You know, one of the lessons we took out of our time working in tsunami relief in Indonesia in 2004 was, mm-hmm. um, you know, good community development principles, which we were trained in in the Philippines. There's an incredible place, a rural development model that Um, my husband and I went to and learned from Filipinos who are doing things really well using local herbs and medicines and um, Mm -hmm. doing, you know, goat milk farms and these crazy things. But the whole principle behind it is you don't go in and say, here's what I have to offer. You go in and you talk to village leaders and get communities together and you say, what are your biggest needs? And then we want to, we don't want to solve it for you because we couldn't, even though we want to be the white savior. (laughs) But in in the end, this is best if we do this together based on what you have tagged as a need in your community. And we saw this over and over again in the tsunami relief because we had big NGOs and I won't name any names, but there's ones that you would have heard of around the world that came in and they, they're like, they gave, they gave these things and they weren't needed. Uh, I mean, even like strange things happen. Like, um, Achenese people were walking around with backpacks full of us $100 bills, which there was no exchange place to even exchange it. I was like, oh, thank you. Or obviously the, the really bad one, which was pork and beans for Muslims. They don't eat pork, you know, just like mm-hmm. so blind. Like there's just such value in listening and knowing what people need. And we know that on a community level, but we know it on an individual level, like in a family, as a parent, in a marriage, you know, like as a wife, if I just assume what my husband needs and he's like, I really, I don't need that. Thanks for that present for Christmas, but I don't need that or whatever. Eat, I'd like to take it back. Yeah, exactly. Is there a gift receipt, please? <laughs> But yeah, we do that on macro levels too, I think in the church. And so I love your vision of that, where it's really deep listening, really good connections with the, the, you know, leaders in our communities that we can be seen as um, not just saviors for everything the way we want to do it, but it takes takes us right back to what you said earlier is how do we, what is, what would a servant do? Mm. What would a servant do? A servant wouldn't come in with their idea of what's best. Um, A servant would come in and say, what's going on and what do you need and how can I help? Yeah. And that builds trust to then gain access to even the deeper needs that are there that they maybe won't start off by telling us. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is so true. Well, one more thing I'd like to unpack is, you know, some people are at work and they don't know how to even talk about their faith. Um, in certain Mm -hmm. environments. I hear this a lot as a pastor here in Silicon Valley. I heard it a lot in Singapore and Indonesia as well. Um, You know, sometimes just wanting to do the right thing, wanting to say it in the right way and not really knowing how, Mm -hmm. because sometimes the tools and the methods we're given are are not a posture of service. Like we've mentioned, they're not a posture of deep listening. They're more of like, you have this set agenda of how you have to say something, which often with real people and who are human beings, it doesn't quite work. So what advice would you have for anyone who's just kind of wondering how they can make a difference in that conversation? I'm what you were just describing. People feel like a project yeah, and then they start avoiding. And then the Christians feel like they're being persecuted when actually (laughs) 
they've kind of brought it on themselves. Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts. I think one of the things our chairman will say uh, of our organization is that doing your work really, really well is the first step. Mm. Doing it really well, being a great worker, because then you earn the right to be able to say something else. So I think that would be first. And then there's a woman named Sue Warnke in the Bay Area. She works for Facebook and she's pretty extraordinary. And um, she'll do two things that I just love. You know, it's not a Bible on her desk. It's not leading a Bible study at lunch or getting the four spiritual laws out with people. It's very organic and it's very genuine. And the first thing is on Monday, you know, when they were in the office, but even on meetings, when they'll talk about what did you do over the weekend, she will often, not always, but throw in in the middle of hiking and doing stuff with her kids and running errands and seeing a movie, going to church, getting the car fixed and just throwing church in there as a very light touch um, so that it becomes a seed. And somebody might remember that. Somebody might be offended by it. Somebody might be appalled by it, but she'll just throw that out there. And then the other thing she does, because she's not only a great leader, well, because she's a great leader, she also cares about her people's personal life. And whether they're talking to her about a work situation where they're stuck and they're feeling anxiety around that, or they bring to her something from their personal life that's hard, she will listen. And then she will say, is it okay if I pray for you? And she doesn't pray for them right there because that could be awkward. Um, and she's, I think if I remember her right, I don't think she's ever had anybody say no. And then she will pray for them. And then whenever it feels appropriate and not too pushy, she will just check back in and say, just wanted to know I prayed about that situation with your mom. How's it going? And, you know, we have to earn the right to be invited into a conversation. And then I think the bigger issue too is the humility to say, I may not be in their life when they meet Jesus. I may have, like Sue does, she plants these beautiful seeds because Jesus told her that's her job is to plant seeds. His job is to harvest and, and or to cause the growth. And it may be years from now or months from now or at their aunt's house where all these seeds come together and they see Jesus. So to be, um, to be okay with having been a seed. There were a lot of times in the gospels. I just finished rereading them this year in the message translation. There were a lot of times when Jesus did a miracle and the first thing he said to his disciples, we're leaving and don't tell anybody what we just did. Yeah. I don't really know, but he did not connect the gospel message every time he did a miracle. So I think there are times to be more direct and other times to have a, a soft touch that allows a magnetic force to develop where they may, if they're ready, they may come back. Yeah, I love all that. It's uh, Sue's going to be on the podcast too. I'm interviewing her in a couple of days, and I also love her. I just I love the things she writes about how to um, to bring your faith to work, and I love that she's um, you know come from a journey of her own where she yeah. she didn't. Her stories were remarkable. Yeah, I always find people like that fascinating because like, what was it that made you change? You know, I have a lot of Muslim friends who decided to follow Jesus, and that's a huge leap. Like, that's an incredible yes. leap. They've given up so much more than I ever will. And I'm always curious like what it is. And I find that those stories so beautiful and they help me understand how to have conversations that are more authentic with people about faith of all religious backgrounds or, or no religion at all. I think there is a common humanity that, <clears throat> that we all share if we're willing yeah. to go there. And as soon beautiful. as we start seeing ourselves as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as above people or better than people, you know, my husband has this phrase. He's like, we're all in the same boat. 
<laughs> we all yeah. need a savior. <laughs> we can't do this life on our own. And even if we think we can, we, we can't, you know, there, there are times in life where we just need something besides what we have to offer. That, that posture lets me enter in a conversation with a coworker who's not a believer. And I don't have to act like I'm perfect. I can say when they mess up or do, I can say, oh yeah, me too. I've done that before too. And I hated that. Don't you? I don't have to put myself above them, yeah. which is never a good way to get somebody to want to share more. No, it's the first way to shut someone down. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I, I love that illustration. I was kind of keep it in my brain. We're all in the same boat. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> well, Nancy, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners around the world, either about women in the church or faith and work or anything that I didn't ask? I just think to go back to what we talked about earlier is like, even if it's for um, five minutes a week, if it's two minutes a day, if it's an hour a month, how do we turn our faces back towards Jesus from time to time? to just sit with him. I've been reading a lot of Henry Nouwen lately. And, you know, even that amazing man had the hardest time believing he was beloved by God. Mm. And if I'm, if I'm honest, I do too. I do too. And sometimes these ideas of it has to be an hour every day, every morning. I don't know that that's helpful. And I think sometimes to say in the course of a day, I'm going to take two minutes and be alone and quiet and just say to myself, Jesus, it's hard for me to believe that you love me like you say you do. Help me. Mm. I want to believe it's true, but it's too good to be true. Those little, those little minutes. I, I'm also reading a lot of a young woman named Eddie Hillison, who was a 28, 29-year-old Dutch Jewish woman going into Auschwitz. And the two years before, um, she would talk about building a place inside of her that was just her and God. And there was great joy there. And it's like, how can you talk about joy when you are looking Auschwitz in the face? And she would talk about sometimes just two deep breaths in a day and five minutes talking to God would put her back into center where she needed to be. And it's like, oh, that bar's low. And I, I honestly, I think Jesus made the bar low, not high. Yep. Mustard seed. I've got a little bowl of mustard seeds in my kitchen and I will just pick one of them up sometimes and roll them between my fingers for 30 seconds. That's all Jesus is asking of me. Just a mustard seed. I can do that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I am um, one of my spiritual directors back when I was in Indonesia is incredible woman, Suzanne Williams. And she, um, we read through this book. I had been on a spiritual retreat that she and her husband both led and um, I think it's Robert Mulholland Jr. Oh, yes. Invitation to a Journey. Is that the name yes. of it? Yeah. Fabulous book. Oh, good. It was the first time. I mean, I was still didn't have kids yet, just a kind of young married woman. And it was so fascinating to discover, you know, parts of myself that I felt like were patterns of how God spoke to me. And it was really during that time that it solidified. And I stopped feeling guilty about the fact that being in nature is a really big thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And even some of the tactile things, like I was living in a Muslim culture at the time we had Islamic law and I dressed, you know, Muslim wear and uh, I didn't, we didn't really know any other Christians or hardly any. And so 
Um, I never saw a cross. I never, I didn't see churches when it was Christmas time. You never would have known. And um, there was a, a group of people from Egypt, some Coptic Christians that came out and just wanted to pray in our area. So we kind of facilitated that. And they brought me this little cross from Egypt. And I just kind of kept it in a drawer to have a cross out in that situation. Some yes. people found it very offensive. So I didn't want to offend anyone just because some people think of the crusades and Christians did really bad things. And I didn't want to offend anyone. So I kept it in a drawer, like in my desk, but I would light a candle as my spiritual director helped me discover things that kind of helped me. I would light a candle. Sometimes I would just hold that cross and I would try to at least look outside the window, take a walk if I could. And then when I became a young mom and had a baby that didn't sleep through the night for the first two years, and then I had twins and that was a whole other thing. Well, here's what I love. You have two, you have three little kids and you get the word, you get the phrase quiet time. You're like, quiet? (laughs) No, no. No, absolutely not. And so, but it was just like these, like you said, just short moments, just like a reminder, a centering. Um, even she gave me this little book called breath prayers. You know, we know what these are, but breath prayers kind of got me through because it's like, all I have right now is to just breathe and say this phrase, (laughs) but you know, just discovering it. It is enough. And um, yeah, so that book kind of freed me up to be like, you know, it can look different ways in different seasons at different times. And that's okay. You know, it's good. It's not just okay. It's good. It's good. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Nancy. What are some resources that you would recommend? Books, movies, songs, podcasts, thought leaders? Oh my goodness. Oh, there's so many. I mean, the book, we were just talking about Mulholland's book. Another one like that is called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. Yeah, we talked about 11 ways of connecting to God and choosing the top two or three for yourself. Um, I listen to such a wide variety of podcasts. It's just almost embarrassing. <laughs> um, I, you know, there's some leadership ones I love and there's some ones on an opera that I just have found fascinating. And then, you know, stories of California. I just, I think, you know, finding what feeds your soul and letting that be your pathway to God is so important. Mm. Um, Instead of just taking recommendations from somebody else, being a student of yourself. St. Augustine used to say the first step in understanding God is understanding yourself. Mm. God made you. So learning what works for you and what books and podcasts and nature feed your soul or whatever it is, worship music for some people. You know, I've got friends for whom worship music is their primary way to meet God. And I have others who say, if I never listened to another worship song my whole life, I would be still connected to God. Yeah. They're <laughs> appalled at each other. At the end of the day, it's all good. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Well, thank you for your time today, Nancy. You are just a, such a blessing. You help us think outside You're the welcome. box. Thanks for and- doing it. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's my pleasure, my honor. And um, yeah, I just, I, I hope that you have a year full of surprises, new imagination, blessing, and just that God continues to show yeah. you how you're made. You. And for this next season for you and John and your whole family, we love you guys. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank you. And tell Sue, I said, hello, when you talk to her. I definitely will. <laughs> Bye, Nancy. Bye. Thanks, Lori. Ah, isn't Nancy just so great? I just feel like when I listen to her and talk to her, I just feel like it's so good for the soul. She really does expand my imagination of what it can look like to, to follow Jesus, to experience more of the beauty of Jesus and, and to, instead of, I guess, falling into the trap we often fall into, which is we have to look a certain way and be a certain kind of cookie cutter Christian or a certain cookie cutter woman or a certain cookie cutter, um, even leader, you know, as she follows Jesus and, 
and explores who she is and throughout her life has done the hard work of that. Um, just you can see the beauty of that reflected in her life and in her journey. And and it means she doesn't get blown in different directions when the wind comes her way and storms come into her life that she, she stays steady on, on those things. And it's a good reminder to me today of whatever we're going through and COVID still <laughs> raging around our planet here in California, especially. And um, and just the the political winds that blow one direction or another, that there's a steadiness that, that she calls us to and in life. And just, uh, yeah, I, I really I just appreciate her voice, especially as she thinks through what it could look for, like here in the Bay Area, for the Bay Area to be transformed in, in the ways that she described. And as you're thinking through your own workplaces, wherever you are around the world today listening to this, I really hope that that encouragement to just um, have just the faith of a small little mustard seed. Maybe you'll do what she did and just have a jar of mustard seeds in your kitchen and once in a while hold it in your hand. We're spending a lot of time at home these days. So, um, that might be a little more possible than it would be regularly on in the midst of Zoom calls for work. Um, but yeah, just those reminders of it's the little things. It's the being faithful in the the small things, doing our best job we can at work and um, allowing God's goodness to flow through us, whether we believe in God or not, but just that pursuit of goodness that's all around us that we could invite into our own selves and into our own jobs, our own um, journeys and our, and our families and communities. And, you know, I also loved really the things that she was mentioning about partnering together with people in our civic organizations around us, the people that lead us, the mayors of our cities, they're they're going through such difficulty with, you know, just relentless decision making going on for public health care workers like Dr. Sarah Cody here in Santa Clara. I can only imagine how exhausted she is after a year of this. Um, and, and I just reaching out as people who just want to serve and help and be a part of the solution. And I just I think we all need a little help right now, <laughs> so especially our leaders in our community. So that was a good reminder today for all of you out there who are different and who are wanting to make a difference. I, I really feel like this is a good space to step into, uh, whatever that looks like for you, wherever you are, whether you're in Indonesia and you're thinking about the mayors of your city and wondering how you can be more supportive, of, of better help to help goodness come through in your community or Maybe you're living in Singapore and you're in a, a busy office work environment and you're noticing your boss or your manager, or your CEO is just tired and just wanting to find a way to be helpful. Um, I just think that that example of servant leadership is something we want to see more of and we want to be more of. And certainly Nancy has called us to that today. Not, not trying to be perfect because that's a game none of us will win, but knowing that even when we make mistakes and we fail, we can apologize if that's necessary, like she said, but also, you know, give our non-material reality, I think is to, well, I mean, the early church called it a heresy. I mean, yeah. it was Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we've got to integrate what faith looks like in this world where God has placed us and to wish ourselves out of it hastily is really to disregard where God has placed us. Mm -hmm. um, and God has placed in 
a lot of difficult circumstances. God, and, and we know God placed Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances to carry the, the sin of the world. You know, I, I think um, to, to figure out what that looks like is so imperative for each person. And that's, that's a huge conversation. Um, but I think we've got to move from a place in church life where it's just sort of business as usual to saying, how do we have these, these harder conversations about how we see everyday experiences? How do we, you know, in a, in a work culture where someone can get a, a boost in salary because of really a form of exploitation force, which is something she was a part of um, helping to get, you know, ramped up when she, a few years ago, made the decision to follow Jesus and, and recognize that it's not easy to bring your full authentic self until. So as you do that this week, I'd love to hear any of the stories that you're um, a part of and where that's happening so that we could just encourage one another to be fulfilling that God-given potential that we all have. So carry that with you this week, the joy that Eric Woodard exudes, the way he's making a difference there in, in D.C. through the Smithsonian and all the different spaces where he's at as a husband, as a dad, as a friend who continues to be a good friend to my husband and a lot of those guys that went to international school Bangkok together. So as you're going throughout your lives this week, just reach out to someone, be vulnerable to reach out to someone who would encourage you as well. And let's just be better together and fulfill our God-given potentials together. I hope all of you are voting and we are praying about the Try Alitu, the number one platform for the best editing and recording experience.